0: Welcome to the Business Radio Network. Enjoy small biz, big voices with Stephanie Rising. Hi, I'm Stephanie Rising, a business coach and author in beautiful Tucson, Arizona. Today it's my pleasure to speak with celebrated Tucson artist Diana Maderas. Our interview will conclude with a Proust lightning round and our final segment will be Dear Coach, when I'll coach listeners through issues they've emailed in. First, I'd like to welcome Diana Maderas, an artist with a diverse portfolio ranging from brilliant desert landscapes to expressionistic portraits. Much in demand for commissioned artwork, Diana created 8 paintings for the estate of the former president of Mexico. Her painting, The Blues at Old Main, was commissioned for the cover of the University of Arizona alumni magazine. Her art has also appeared on the covers of six other magazines, including Art Book of the West and Tucson Lifestyle. Diana is very active in community service, and her art has benefited more than 100 charities. Before opening her gallery, Diana operated a high-profile sports marketing company in Tucson, promoting major events, including LPGA and PGA golf tournaments. A month-long painting trip in Greece in 1993 changed her life, prompting her to sell her marketing company and devote her career to painting. She has since been voted Tucson's best visual artist nine times. Diana, welcome to the show, and thank you for spending time with us today. Thank you, Stephanie. I'm honored to be here. I really appreciate it. And I know we were going to have you on the show originally in December, and then uh, I caught a cold and lost my voice, so I really appreciate you hanging in there and coming back. not a a problem. (laughs) I wanted to start the show by inviting you to share a bit about your career before you devoted yourself to art full-time, because... You owned a marketing company, and that requires a great deal of creativity, but it's very different from being a painter. So, how did you come to make that transition?
1: Well, I should go back and say that when I was a child, I had a lot of creative energy, Hmm. and I was always writing. And my mom thought I would be an author, but I did not want to be a writer. Um, and I went to college, and I had no clue about what I wanted to do. And I, ha- I had taken a couple art classes in, in high school and then later in college, <clears throat> but that was not ever a thought of being a career. Hmm. And I, the counselor at college said, well, wh- what do you want to major in? And I said, I don't know. My mother made me come here. <laughs> And she said, well, what would you like in high school? I said, well, I was an athlete. I showed horses. I played tennis. And she said, well, be a PE teacher and you can have your summers off. And I'm like, okay. So I went through four years of PE and loved doing the sports and the science. And then I got to student teaching and and I just didn't like it. Yeah. And I thought, well, maybe I could go to college. I mean, uh, get a a graduate degree and teach college and Mm -hmm. I would be happier doing that. So I applied to the University of Arizona and San Diego State, and I got a full ride in Tucson first, and I moved from New Jersey to Tucson, never saw the place. Wow. Packed my car. That's a big change, too. Drove across the country, yep. And um, got my master's in in, uh, biomechanics, and I hated it. So when I got out of school, I said, I'm open to whatever. I know I don't want to be a teacher. I know I don't no. want to do research. So I answered three ads in the paper and wound up selling life insurance. Hmm. And that was the beginning of a foundation in business. But I hated life insurance too. So, so you're 0 for 3 at this point. I know. And, <laughs> and I said in desperation to one of my coworkers, what could I do, you know, so I could get up in the morning and, and enjoy going to work? And she knew my background and she said, why don't you promote tennis tournaments? Huh. And to make a long story short, a month later, I was working in the field before anyone even knew what sports marketing was. There was a gentleman in Tucson who was running golf tournaments all over the country, PGA, and I went to work for him. Eventually, he left town and I started my own business and was happily growing my business. And Mm -hmm. I I was on a trip and I saw another artist's work and I was very inspired by it and thought, Mm -hmm. I need to paint again. I came back to Tucson and started painting on my own, and a professor at the U of A saw my work and said, I take a group of students to Greece for a month to paint every summer, and you're going with us. I said, I, I can't do that. I have a husband. I have five cats. You know, I have yeah. a business. I can't just leave my life. And he right. said, no, you're coming, and I, I'm saving a spot for you. And he was relentless. And I finally looked at my calendar, and it actually fell between the tournaments, and I could go, and I left my life for a month to paint, and wow. I was I was altered. I, I, I got off the plane in Athens. My world was black and white. A month later, when I got back on, it was like full color.
0: And how, how old were you at the time? <clears throat>
1: uh, 36.
0: Wow. Yeah. I love stories like that because I... I think that sometimes, and I don't know, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but the type A's out there, we always feel like we have to have a plan and that we have to go into something that's kind of predetermined and we're prepared for it. and We've thought it all the way through. But when you hear most people's stories, uh, yours, mine for that matter, it's it's much more organic than we would have imagined. I mean, I only know one person who said I want to be this when I grow up and they actually were that. And that's my cousin who's a firefighter. I it's, mean, like he always wanted to be a fireman and that was it. So hard to know. Yeah. No one else I know has <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so like, had such a straight line. So it's really wonderful to to hear that it was organic for you as well because you're enormously successful as an artist, which wasn't just like your second act, but it was actually like your fourth professional <laughs> act. You know? Well,
1: for me, it was a search for passion. Yeah, and I was always envious when I would see actors and singers and people who were in the creative arts, um, just being able to um, fulfill their life with something they were passionate about. Yeah, and I I had all this passion, I just didn't know what to do with it, and I I actually never thought it would be art. Did you have
0: kind of that uh, that persistent voice that? That just because was always somewhere in the background, like this is, this is not it. This is not quite for us. There's something
1: else. That's exactly right. Yeah. And at, at some point my sports marketing career started to feel disingenuous Mm. and it wasn't Mm -hmm. like I was searching for something else. It just happened. Yeah. I mean, I didn't consciously go out and say, I want a new career. I want to change my life. Um, but there was definitely discontent.
0: And then serendipity. And then serendipity. So how did you how do I put this like when you first opened your gallery you weren't mm-hmm. new to business but you were new to being a full-time artist how how did you make that particular transition because being an being an entrepreneur takes a particular skill set and then being an artist is very right brain and uh, how, how did you make that leap? Well,
1: I had a lot of technique to learn. And I sought out artists who I admired, and I went and studied with them. And I, uh, I would go on workshops for three weeks. Um, you know, I went to Italy. Um, I went to Mexico with well-known artists who, whose, work I, whose style I liked. And I also had a, a personal uh, art coach in Tucson, and I just learned as much as I could possibly learn about art, technique, principles of color, value, shape. Uh, and I still do that. I still go to one or two workshops a year because mm. the body of knowledge is enormous. Yes. And there's always inspiration when you do that. And you always get new ideas from the teacher and from other artists that you're working with at, at these workshops. I just did one and two back Um and uh, I, I worked with pastel, which I haven't done much work with. And I can't wait to to try some new things. Pastel is difficult. It's it's all difficult. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: well, I'm eager to see what you come up with. I have a couple coming out in my new show, a couple of the new pastel paintings.
0: When is when is the new show? March 8th at Good the gallery. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm going to write that down so we can include that in the show notes. So March 8th is the next From show. From 11 to 2. Okay. And we, we'd like for people to RSVP, please. Okay. And when you're in that that creative space as an artist, how do you then take off that hat and shift into being a gallery owner? Well, if you're doing both, you have to do both at the same
1: time. So I may yeah. be painting at the easel talking on the phone to the staff. Really? Yeah. Or I'll take a break and I'll go answer emails. Yeah. Um, I don't have a problem shifting.
0: So it doesn't disrupt your creative flow. It just kind of flows in and then out. and.
1: Yeah. But I do really enjoy going away for like 10 days on a, a retreat yeah. and, and shutting out the world. And then I can really get
0: into a, a flow. Well, you went back to Greece last year and came back with some beautiful paintings.
1: My professor, the same one, said he'd been asking me every year to go back again, and I had some excuse every year. <laughs> and he said, this is our 25th anniversary of our first trip, and you're going. One more time, <laughs> he he was twisting my arm, and I went, and it was terrific. I like the Bougainville painting. Oh, I thank you. I think
0: that's my favorite. <laughs> that is a fun one. I can see the benefit of of going away though and really being able to just be in the creative frame of mind it's immersion yeah yeah what what was something when you were first starting out when you look back what do you wish you had known or what was kind of the trickiest part of becoming a full-time artist where you were that was like your means of survival right uh, I, it was it, on the business side
1: mm-hmm. um it was uh first of all you you need to pay your salespeople commission. I yeah. just had them on straight salary and I, someone advised me to switch to commission uh a commission basis uh part salary part commission and it was night and day all of a sudden, these people cared more about selling a painting. It
0: mm-hmm. was very
1: eye opening to me. Hmm. so that was interesting also I, I didn't have a retail background so there were a lot of retail principles that i learned from a business coach so kudos to you for helping people do that kind of thing but Thank th- you. this was way back um so i didn't realize that you know maybe i didn't ha- have enough inventory to make our goal mm. mm-hmm. um put all like products together it's more impactful uh, when you hang paintings on the wall hang them more by color than by subject matter so interesting all these little you know tricks of the trade in retail were what i did not have
0: hmm because that's that's true i mean and i'm a service-based business as soon as you said the retail end of it 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 would be a a huge shift to now have to deal with not just maintaining an inventory but how you display it and how that like the whole psychology of color and um, yeah, that would be a really big change. Yeah. Huh. Another uh, big change that I wanted to talk to you about. That's a little more on the personal side is I, I first met you in person, I think about three years ago and I had only known you as like Diana Medeiros, the artist out in the community, like just your face, but I didn't know you as a human being and one of the things that struck me immediately is you have a very strong energy, but it's also a very quiet energy. And I immediately wondered what it was like for you as, as a more introverted person to be so public. I mean, you are your brand, your art is your brand your image is everywhere. You greet people at the airport, (laughs) right? (laughs) That's true. (laughs) So what, what does that feel like for you to, to be such a public figure, but be such a private person? Um, that's not my favorite part of it. Um, you know, I
1: just remember one incident where I was uh, leaving a restaurant and as I'm walking out, someone grabbed my arm and said, Mm. Oh, you know, you're Diana Maderis, and, you know, this and this and this. And it was just jarring, you know. Yeah. I mean, I'd rather be kind of anonymous. Yeah. Um, but in the gallery, you know, I'm happy to come and talk to customers. I, I like that a lot. And I'm not the kind of introvert that's going to go up on the mountain and never come down. Right. I, mean, I do need that interaction with people, too. And I do right. love business as well. So the combination is good for me, but I'm most happy in my studio painting.
0: Yeah. yeah, and if you're interacting with people in your gallery, that's an appropriate context. Yes. but it would be very strange to just want to go out and have dinner and have somebody
1: yeah. grab at And you. I, I um, when I was in my sports marketing life, mm-hmm. um, one of my um, duties was to take care of John Denver when he came to town. Uh, I had recruited him as our celebrity host for the pro-am huh. and I saw the attention that he got, the unwanted attention. He was very gracious but we could never sit down for a meal without people swarming, you know, and I feel bad for people who have really high visibility and, and you know, like actor celebrity um, Yeah, that they, you know, it it must be very difficult.
0: It must be exhausting. Now,
1: now there are some positives, too, I have to say. I, I was trying to get into an eye doctor on a Friday, <laughs> and he was not seeing any patients. He was in surgery, and then he, he heard that it was me, and he liked my work from the airport, so he agreed to see me. So there
0: are some benefits. So you take the good with the bad. <laughs> you, you have to, right? Uh, we're going to take just a quick break. This is Small Biz, Big Voices, hosted by Stephanie Rising. I'm a small business coach on a mission to get business owners off their hamster wheel and empower them as authentic and influential leaders. My coaching program centers around the seven primal business needs. Today, I'm visiting with artist Diana Medeiros. Um, You know, all leaders have to tap into some kind of inspiration to keep moving their ideas forward and moving their company forward. And I was curious, you've got like these two sides of your of your brain, the business side and the artistic side. So where do you draw f- for inspiration for each one of those?
1: Well, um, for example, I just went to market to shop for the gallery for next holiday season. And I'm so excited about some of the new vendors and some of the new products. So yeah. that's business inspiration. As far as artistic inspiration... All I have to do is look around. Um, I have Mm. my camera. uh, I see light and shadow. uh, I can envision a painting. But also other artists inspire me. And in particular, John Nieto, who um, was one of the most well-known Native American artists. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had asked him to show in our gallery, and he agreed. And I had his paintings in my studio, in my painting studio, all around me before we hung them at the gallery. And from his, I love his work, and from his work, I got this idea to do spirit animals. And I thought I would do one, and I did a coyote, that was my first one, Mm -hmm. and a a friend who's a beautiful artist came over to my studio, and he said, you need to do more of these. And I'm like, really? I said, I'm I'm not sure I could sell this. He said, no, you need to do more of these. So I now have 30 of them. And I can't keep them in the gallery. It's been incredible. So two artists really inspired me
0: to, to do that whole series. And when you when you said you went on that original trip to Greece and you arrived seeing things in black and white and you left seeing things in color, what has been the the difference in how you observe things and not just what you see but how you see them? Well. You see things differently as an artist. You,
1: you. Uh, let me put it this way: you learn how to see, because you don't paint a tree; you paint the shape uh, that makes up a tree. Mm-hmm. So you you look at things um, in more parts than necessarily a whole, hmm. um, and you see light and shadow. And in a the shadow, there's three different colors and Uh, this light is brighter than that light. And it's a whole way of learning to see before you can interpret it on paper or canvas.
0: And I imagine once you get to the point where you see things that way, you can't unsee them that way. You you do not get, you do not get to go back in the box. (laughs) (laughs) Which is good. Once you're out.
1: That's that's right.
0: Yeah. I know something else that, that really inspires you, um, is animals. And you've done a great deal for various charities over the years. I know that Tucson wild wildlife center in particular is very close to your heart. And at their benefit dinner last March, you were honored and rightfully so for your philanthropic efforts. Why are animals so special to you? And how does the wildlife center in particular play a role in that?
1: I grew up in my dad's veterinary hospital. I mean, we had a Connected to his hospital. So one hmm. door separated us, and I was always over there helping him, trying to help him. Um, and when I was older, I actually worked there. And anytime he would go on a farm call, Daddy, can I please go? You know, I want to touch the horse, I want to see the pig, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. So I, I've had this deep love for animals since day one. In, in fact, I'm going to tell you something. I probably shouldn't say, but I had a dream once that I was pregnant and had a baby, and it came. It came out was a cat.
0: Really? <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> I know that's very weird. I'm sorry.
0: Well, you did have five cats. I, mean, I did have five cats. Kind of odds are they're going to enter your
1: dream one way yeah, or another. Yeah, <laughs> I, I guess so. But I, I, I extremely close connection to animals. I get them. I understand them. I have empathy for them. Yeah. And when I I had helped the Tucson Wildlife Center for. Um, 20 years since they started. I've donated art to their whatever charity functions that they've had. And uh, then I I learned, they came to me for, they needed more help. Mm. There were 12 wildlife rescues in southern Arizona. That means Nevada to um, New Mexico to the border of Mexico. And now there's one Oh, my goodness. So they used to take care of 1,500 animals a year, and now it's 4,000, and they didn't get any more money. So they have this crush of animals, no more money, and they're not funded at all by any governmental agency. It's all private donation, and they asked
0: me for more help. Did they did they shrink after 2008? I mean, what, what caused... That was a large part of it? Is it was financial.
1: Wow. Right, and then there was a fire that was devastating. One bird sanctuary uh, burned. Oh, that's terrible. Um, So they're the only ones left. And they were given a big grant. They built a state-of-the-art hospital. They are a very fine uh, rescue center. So we have a a gala once a year. And my goal was to raise enough money at the gala for them to have a full-time veterinarian. Because otherwise, the animals come in and, you know, they're suffering, yeah. and they have to call around and find out what volunteer veterinarian might come over to help this animal. Maybe someone comes, maybe someone can't come. Yeah. So now they have full-time around-the-clock veterinary care, and, wow. and it's very it's been very rewarding to actually make a difference. That's wonderful. Yeah.
0: And for people who are interested in learning more about the center, where can they go?
1: They have a website, Tucson Wildlife Center, um, is the name of the organization, and all you have to do is, is, uh, Google that. Okay. And I'm making a note. I will add that to the show notes. And so. also,
0: if you'd like, I can
1: send you a video from the last dinner, um,
0: Oh, that would be great. And I'll put that on the Small Biz Big Voices Facebook page so people have a chance to check that out because they they are doing a lot of really wonderful work. I follow them on Facebook and stories come up all the time of animals that they've helped, they've rehabilitated, and they've been able to release back into the wild. It's a a pretty awesome organization.
1: And this video um, was done kind of as an honoree video. So it, it shows growing up at the veterinary hospital and my dad and... Um, it, it was very um, bittersweet because my sister is a TV producer in New Jersey. She did the video, and my dad's in the video, and he he was um, ill. And he just wanted to live long enough to see the video completed. And he, he passed away one week after the the, the gala last year, so he, he got to see it. He did get to it. see yeah. it. So my sister feels like helping the wildlife center – with veterinary care is, is, um, carrying on my dad's legacy.
0: Very much so. Yeah. That's wonderful. The last question that I have for you is, you know, I love having a variety of professions represented on the show because I think that everyone has a story regardless of what they do. And I also think that stories give us a better understanding of the actual work and the risks that go into, um, a particular business or industry Is there anything about being an artist that you wish people better understood?
1: Well, you're really putting yourself out there. Mm -hmm. You know, you are naked in front of people when you say, this is my creation, and what do you think of it, you know, basically. So I would say be kind uh, when you see Mm -hmm. someone's art. Um, The creative spirit is very delicate, and people can be very cruel. Uh, I, you know... I've seen that happen. Yeah. Um, and I would say support your local artists.
0: Where, other than your gallery, I should say, in addition to your gallery. Are there
1: other, are there other galleries in well, Tucson?
0: Well, where's... <laughs> I'm kidding. Where are places to... <laughs> 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 one or two, Diana, just yeah, I'm one or just two. Just kidding. Uh, where do you like to look for local art? If you're kind of taking a field trip somewhere and and trying to get a sense of Who's emerging in the art scene? Where do you go?
1: I I go to all the galleries and look. Yeah, it's inspirational. Um, I just love to see other people's work as well. Mm. And when I travel, I always go to galleries. And I buy art. Yeah. Because if you love art, you buy art. Yes. So I like to collect art myself.
0: And I have more than just my own art in my house. Other than uh, Mr. Nieto, is there another favorite? Who you have? Um,
1: I'd like to say Winslow Homer, but I do not have a Winslow <laughs> Homer. But I wish I had a Winslow Homer and a Richard Schmidt. He's the uh, he's a living artist who I greatly admire. I'd love to have a Richard Schmidt. Um, I, I,
0: I'll think about that. Okay. It's good to know the list. Yeah. <laughs> Richard Schmidt. I'm going to yeah. write him down. Yeah. I like Winslow Homer, but... Such a bad multitasker. I'm mumbling into my own podcast while making notes. <laughs> uh, you can check out Diana's portfolio, her galleries, guest artists, and upcoming events at www.madeiras.com. That's M A D A R A S.com. And uh, the reason why I'm mumbling and taking notes is because I also add these things to the show notes for everyone's reference afterwards. So check out the show notes on my Small Biz Big Voices Facebook page. Uh, We are now going to go to the Proust lightning round. Okay. The Proust questionnaire was a parlor game made popular by the French essayist and novelist Marcel Proust. He believed that by answering 35 specific questions, an individual reveals their true nature. We're going to go through a handful uh, in just three minutes. Are you ready? Okay. Okay. (laughs) The first one is who are your heroes in real life? I would say Richard
1: Schmidt is one of my heroes in real life. Um, let's let's list him.
0: Okay. What are your favorite names? Julia is one.
1: Uh, Natalie is another.
0: Natalie is my niece's name.
1: Oh, good pick. I have two nieces <laughs> named Natalie and Julia. <laughs> so there you go.
0: What is what do you most dislike? Uh, betrayal. Mm hmm. What is your greatest regret?
1: Lying in the sun when I was a kid. Yeah. I've had so many skin issues because of that. I would never lie in the sun if I knew what I know today.
0: Yeah. What do you most value in your friends? Loyalty. Mm. And last but not least, what is your most marked characteristic? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Stick-to-itiveness. And I've seen that in action. (laughs) It is true. Uh, I'd love to have you chime in at the end of our last segment. Dear Coach gives our listeners the chance to have their emailed questions addressed. And today's Dear Coach is about the discomfort of firing bad employees. Being a small business owner requires tenacity and a certain toughness. But that doesn't mean that looking someone in the eye and taking away their livelihood is an easy action to take. I like to remind clients that an employee can be a good person and a bad fit. I personally have used what I call the three strikes policy, and it helps to keep actions respectful and timely. So here's what you can do. Meeting one. You sit down with your employee and let them know that you've observed some areas of their performance you'd like to help them improve. Give them some examples of their current choices or behavior. Communicate what the standard is that you would like them to achieve and then ask how you can help them. Maybe they need information or training or technology to help them be successful Go into the meeting with an open mind and be prepared to act on constructive, realistic feedback. End the meeting by recapping the actions you each commit to and set a follow-up meeting. Be sure to document in their file a summary of your conversation. By meeting two, either the employee's performance will have improved or the employee still has progress to make. If they've improved... Give them specific examples of what you've noticed and be sure to let them know how much you appreciate their effort. You don't want an employee to feel backed into a corner with no place to go. They need to understand that it's okay to make mistakes or to receive constructive criticism and as long as they learn and respond, there's no need to fear for their job. If they have not improved, give them specific examples of what you've noticed Re-extend the invitation to share with you any obstacles and how you can help resolve them. End the meeting by recapping the actions you each commit to. And again, set up a (laughs) follow-up meeting. Document in their file a summary of that conversation. Meeting three is when many small business owners start getting the sweats. Small businesses are often like second families, so parting ways with an employee can be upsetting for all involved. But feelings of guilt and anxiety over firing one employee can wind up wreaking havoc with your entire business. Prolonging the decision demotivates high-performing employees who see an underperforming coworker continue to collect a paycheck. So you can be compassionate and respectful and still fire an employee. So this is what you do. If by the third meeting The employee is still not performing to the company's standards. The polite and honest thing to do is to let them know that it's time to part company. You may choose to give them severance pay in addition to their last paycheck. That's up to your judgment. Be sure to document in their file that you fired them for failure to perform based on your prior conversations. I would encourage you to have an HR specialist or an attorney with HR experience in your circle of advisors. So you have an established resource to give you guidance as needed. Now we've got, I would say five or six minutes left. And this is something I want to discuss with you because again, you know, wearing your gallery hat, I'm sure you've had employees over the years. You've had to let some of them go. What, what did you find uncomfortable? And then what did you ultimately find to be a good process for you?
1: Well, as you said, it it is, um, hard because you know, you're ending their livelihood for the time being. Yeah. So, um, well, I found, first of all, you don't discuss the reasons at that point, the reasons have been discussed in prior conversations. So you make it short Mm -hmm. and you tell them you know i've enjoyed working with you it's it's not a good fit it's not a good probably not a good fit for you either you know right and usually at that point when they're not doing well they're not happy either and i would say to them you know i would like to help you any way that i can move on to something else and um it depends on you know, their performance, if I'm willing to give them a referral or not, or, Mm -hmm. uh, in some cases, um, I will actually go make phone calls for that person because I think they're going to, you know, they, they do want to work in another field and, and I'm glad to help them do that because they weren't a good fit for us. I do give them severance because I don't want to throw anyone, you know, out on the street with no money. Yeah. So that just makes me feel better as well as gives them a little lifeline and, um, I, I try to take the emotion out of it, you know, take the emotion out of it. And, uh, I've gotten, I mean, it's never easy. I've, I've gotten better at doing it in a more compassionate way.
0: And I think, you know, some people who are really reluctant to fire an employee forget that there, there are people out there for whom change is very difficult and very scary. And therefore they will not initiate it even if they know that's what needs to be done and that it would actually benefit them. right? And uh, I know I've, I've mentioned on the show before that part of my practice is behavioral analysis and the DISC assessment. And I would say, you know, conservatively, there are around 60% of the behavioral types out there do not like change. And and again, they will resist it, even if they know it is for their own benefit. So there are times, I mean, more often than not, if you let someone go who is fundamentally not a good fit, they sense it. And letting them go actually releases them and gives them permission to try something else. And um, I mean, I've, back in my previous life, I had employees circle back around and say, you know what, I found a job that I'm really enjoying. And I've had other clients experience that as well. And so kind of that fear that people are going to hate you and there's going to be this ill will towards you or your your business. I think that that's more of the exception. And the rule is relief once it's actually done. I agree. So that brings us to the end of today's episode. If you have a question or problem you'd like for us to talk about during our Dear Coach segment, please email me at stephanie at therisingeffect.com. I invite you to follow the show on our Small Biz Big Voices Facebook page, which includes show notes and announcements for upcoming shows. Next month, I'll be speaking with Sarah Cotton of Gut Instinct and Dr. Stephanie Stark with Blue Oak Clinic about the root causes of chronic illness and the increased interest in holistic wellness. My thanks to today's guest, Diana Medeiros, my producer, Mark Bishop, and to you for joining us on Small Biz, Big Voices.